Chapter Nineteen of Devlin the Barber by B. L. Fargen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I rapped my knuckles, and a voice which could have been none other than the voice of Devlin immediately responded, calling to me to enter. The next moment I stood face to face with the strange creature, concerning whom my curiosity was raised to the highest pitch. He was sitting in a chair upon my entrance, and he did not rise from it. Therefore I looked down upon him, and he looked up at me. As my eyes rested on his face, I saw in it the inspiration of the evil expression in the faces of Mr. Lemon's portrait, the stone monster, and the bird's beak, which had made so profound an impression upon me in the parlour on the ground floor. "'You have been in the house some time,' said Devlin. "'I have,' I answered, "'and have had a long, a very long, conversation with my worthy landlady,' he observed. "'Yes,' I said. "'About me,' he said, not in the form of a question, but as a statement of fact. "'Partly about you. And about poor Lemon? Yes, about him as well.' "'Sit down,' said Devlin. "'I expected you.' There was only one other chair in the room besides the one he occupied and I accepted his invitation, and drew it up to the table. And there we sat, gazing at each other for what appeared to me a long time in silence. The room was very poorly furnished. There were the two chairs, a small deal table, and a single iron bedstead in the corner. Off the room was a kind of closet, in which I supposed were a washstand and fittings. There was only one other article in view in addition to those I have mentioned, and that was a desk at which Devlin was writing. He did not put away his papers, and I was enabled to observe, without undue prying, that his writing was very fine and very close. How shall I describe him? A casual observation of his face and figure would not suffice for the detection of anything uncanny about him, but it must be remembered that I was abnormally excited, and most strangely interested in him. He was tall and dark, his face was long and spare. His forehead was low. His eyes were black, with an extraordinary brilliance in them. His mouth was large, and his lips thin. He wore a moustache, but no beard. In the order and importance of the impressions they produced upon me, I should place first his black eyes, with their extraordinary brilliancy, and next his hands, which were unusually small and white. They were the hands of a lady of gentle culture, rather than those of a man in the class of life to which Devlin appeared to belong. Not alone was his social standing presumably fixed by the fact of his living in a room so poorly furnished at the top of a house so common as Mr. Lemon's, but his clothes were a special indication. They were shabby and worn, black frock coat, black trousers and waistcoat, narrow black tie not a vestige of colour about them, and no sign of jewellery of any kind. "'Well?' he said. I started. I had been so absorbed in my observance of him, that I, who should have been the first to plunge into the conversation, had remained silent for a time so unreasonably long that the man upon whom I had intruded might have justly taken offence. "'I beg your pardon,' I said. "'Did you not remark that you expected me?' yes. May I inquire upon what grounds your expectation was based? He smiled, and here I observed, in the quality of this smile, 
a characteristic of which Mrs. Lemon had given me no indication. Devlin was evidently gifted with a touch of humour. "'I reason by analogy,' he said. "'My landlady has very few visitors. You are here for the first time, with an object. You remain closeted with her for hours. She probably sent for you. During the long interview downstairs you have been told a great deal about me. You hear me open the street door, and you know I am in the house. My landlady has a trouble on her mind, and mixes me up with it. You have been made acquainted with this trouble, and with my supposed connection with it. Your curiosity has been aroused, and you determine to seek an interview with me before you take your leave of her. You come up uninvited, and here you are, as I expected. Am I logical? Quite logical. In a common-sense view of commonplace matters, and everything in the world is commonplace, lies the ripest wisdom. Follow my example. Exercise your common sense." But I did not immediately speak. Devlin's words were so different from what I had expected, that I was for a moment at a loss. The prospect of my being able to bring the murderer of Lizzie Melladew to justice, and of earning a thousand pounds, did not appear so bright. I will assist you, he resumed. I will endeavour to set you at your ease with me. Your scrutiny of me has been very searching. I ought to feel flattered. What anticipations of my appearance you may have entertained before you entered the room is your affair, not mine. How far they are realised is your affair, not mine. But allow me to assure you, my dear sir, and here he rose to his full height, and made me a half-humorous, half-mocking bow, that I am a very ordinary person. That cannot be, I said, after what I have heard. It is the destiny, he said, resuming his seat, of greater personages than myself to be ranked much higher than they deserve. Proceed. I am here to speak to you about this murder, I said, plunging boldly into the subject. Ah, about a murder. But there are so many. You know to which one I refer the murder of a young girl in Victoria Park, which took place the night before last. "'I have heard and read of it,' said Devlin. "'You know also,' I continued, "'that the tragedy has produced in Mr. Lemon a condition of mind and body which may lead to dangerous results, probably to a despairing death.' "'All men must die,' he said cynically. I was now thoroughly aroused. "'I have come to you for an explanation,' I said and it must be a satisfactory one. "'You speak like an inquisitor,' said Devlin, with a quiet smile, and I seemed to detect in his altered manner a desire to irritate me and to drive me into an excess of passion. For this reason I kept myself cool, and simply said, "'I am resolved.' "'Good. Keep resolved.' "'I shall do so. By some devilish and mysterious means, you were aware, before the poor girl left her home on Friday night, that her doom was sealed. You could have prevented it, and you did not raise a hand to save her. This knowledge I have gained from Mr. Lemon, to whom, through you, the impending tragedy was known. Then why did he not prevent it? It was not in his power. He was not acquainted with the names of the murderer and his victim. Was I? You must have been. I do not pretend to an understanding of the extraordinary power you exercise, but I am convinced that, 
in connection with you there is a mystery which should be brought to light and if i can be the agent to unmask you i am ready for the work with all the earnestness of my soul i swear it a low laugh escaped devlin's lips were a commissioner of lunacy here he said you would be in peril this young girl you speak of is she in any way connected with you she was my friend i knew her from childhood she has sat at my table with her sister and parents and i and mine have sat at theirs her family are plunged into the lowest depths of despair by the cruel remorseless blow which has fallen upon them and you have taken upon yourself the task of an avenger it is chivalrous but is it entirely unselfish i am always suspicious of mere words there is ever behind them a secret motive hidden by a dark curtain i speak in metaphor but you will seize my meaning for you are a man of nerve and intelligence utterly unlike our friend in the room below whose nature is servile and abject and who is not as you are given to heroics calm yourself i am ready to discuss this matter with you but in your present condition i should have the advantage of you you are heated i am cool and collected you have some self-interest at heart i have none your words are so wild that any person but myself hearing them would take you for a madman for your own sake not for mine for the affair does not concern me i advise moderation of language i suppose you will scarcely believe that the man upon whom you have unceremoniously intruded and against whom you launch accusations the very extravagance of which renders them unworthy of serious consideration you will scarcely believe that this man is simply a poor barber who has not a second coat to his back nor a second pair of shoes to his feet but it is a fact a proof of the injustice of the world ever blind to merit for i am not only a barber sir i am a capable workman as i will convince you pray do not move a cooling essence and a brush skilfully used effect wonders on an overheated head it was not in my power to resist him he had taken his place behind my chair and before he had finished speaking had sprinkled a liquid over my head which was so overpoweringly refreshing that i insensibly yielded to its influence with brush and comb he arranged my hair his small white hands occasionally touching my forehead gently and persuasively when i thought afterwards of this strange incident i called to mind that for the two or three minutes during which he was engaged in the exercise of his art i was in a kind of quiet dream in which all the agitating occurrences of the previous day in connection with the murder of lizzie melladew were mentally repeated in proper sequence closing with mr portland's offer of a thousand pounds for the discovery of the murderer it was as it were a kind of panorama which passed before me of all that occurred between morning and night i looked up inexpressibly refreshed and with my mind bright and clear devlin stood before me smiling confess sir he said in a soft persuasive tone that i have returned good for evil the fever of the brain is abated for i am a bungler indeed we will now discuss the matter End of chapter 19